0: I opened a new bottle of wine, I already pulled myself like half a mug. So if I hate it, I'm just going to suffer through it.
1: And welcome back to Bottomless Broadway as we embark on this journey of part two, aka the last part of our discussion on Broadway plays in the 2020 season. This week lined up is A Christmas Carol, Betrayal, The Inheritance, and the sound inside. I'm Cindy and I'm here with Christine.
0: Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's I,
1: always so, I cut it out every time, like yeah, whatever I you never say. never know what to right. say. I'm like, hey. <laughs> <Yay. laughs> yeah. I can just jump into the Christmas Carol. Um, everyone probably knows this, but it's about this angry old man named Scrooge who has a nicer younger man named bob cratchit working for him and he refuses to give bob cratchit like christmas day off because he is super greedy and wants to make money every day of the year and doesn't give a fuck about christmas spirit but bob cratchit has a whole family and tiny tim waiting at home for him to celebrate christmas so when scrooge goes to sleep on christmas eve He has three ghosts that visit him and take him to visit his past, present, and future to, like, show him why he's fucking up his life. And then he wakes up the next morning and is extra Christmased up.
0: This show was so fun. It was very fun. It started previews in, like, early November. I'm the person that's like, all right, Christmas can wait until after Thanksgiving. I don't want to see your Christmas shit out, like, the first half of November. And after that, I was like, all right, guys. I'm on board with Christmas now.
1: The show is so joyful. First, it like begins and ends with food. Yeah.
0: It, it begins with real food and ends with like a food zip line. He's just like, all right, cool. I'm going to bring the feast to your place. Then the, all the ensemble just like comes in through the audience, like holding just platters of fake food and has the audience help in like passing all the food to the stage. So it feels like it's, you're part of this community that's gathering for this feast. And we were in the orchestra. At first I was like, oh yeah, like, I mean, this is easy for us. Like, what is the mezzanine going to do? And you look up and they hook up like a zip line and they have these little like cloth shoots and they like still pass food through the mezzanine audience and have them basically like pass it up to the shoots and like they're rolling oranges down to the stage and it's Wild. And then when they got to the giant turkey, they ziplined that turkey down on a string.
1: I touched so many plates of food. Yeah. Everything looked really cool. Like you think it wouldn't be that interesting, but they were all like very decadent center food plattery things. Yeah. Um, and like it was fake food, but I'm pretty sure the Jello jiggled. Like, didn't we talk <laughs> yeah. about that? It was very elaborate
0: in terms of props.
1: It looked cool and I wanted to touch everything. Like I was so excited to be able to pass so much food to the front. In terms of like the uh, set and everything, a lot of the show was like kind of dark. Like they went with some really like ghosty, angsty set pieces. Um, And it wasn't like a very vibrant show until the very end, which was awesome because it left – like, everyone left, like, feeling
0: very Christmased up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, they, like, really followed the arc of Scrooge while he's going through... Because he's in a nightmare for, like, basically the whole show. And so the whole set is, like, kind of dark. It's configured as kind of a thrust stage. And then they have these really sort of minimalist doorways that will, like, come up and down to sort of demonstrate space. And the only real lighting... um, Looks like it comes from these lanterns that are around the set. And, like, I'm sure there's more lighting, but it seems like the lanterns are the only thing lighting the stage. And everyone's dressed in these sort of, like, really dark, muted colors and cloaks and stuff because it's winter.
1: The lanterns extended, like, fully into the audience. It was so beautiful. Like, when you looked up, it was just, like, basic bitch tumbler lighting. Just, like... <laughs> beautiful beautiful lanterns like like hundreds of them strung from the ceiling and they were all different and that's also what's on the playbill which i still think is the prettiest playbill i own remember when we saw like pictures of it and i was like if that comes out in black and white i will punch somebody that better come out (laughs) in color it's gorgeous
0: i think that was the other reason why we saw it so early we were like we just need that playbill yeah (laughs) yeah. collector's piece shout out to rob howell for set and costume design I feel like we have
1: a lot to talk about the show and the set still, but I need to rewind back all the way to the beginning of the show because it was such a struggle for me. So you and I and Alice, we walked into the theater and had to go to the bathroom. And before we went downstairs to the bathroom, we saw that they were throwing oranges and cookies into the audience or passing them out. They were being passed out with the playbills and stuff. Um, And I was so excited. So we were like, let's pee really quick and then get that free food, even though we had just eaten dinner. (laughs) (laughs) So I got into like a bathroom stall first and I was totally going to wait for you guys, even though I was dying to get the free food. But there was like no place to wait in the bathroom area because it was so crowded. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I'm just going to leave without you guys. And then when I went to get my playbill, none of the free food people were around. So. I sat down with no free food and then you guys came like 45 seconds later and you guys had everything and I was so pissed. And then that one girl in the cast started walking up the aisle next to us and I tried really hard to get her attention. So I got an orange from her, but it was very embarrassing. Like everyone within three rows of us saw that. And then I still <laughs> had not gotten my biscuits yet. So there is this guy on stage who like there were, some actors roaming the aisles and then there were some actors on stage that were throwing food at people and I was like, That's my dude. So (laughs) I I just like looked at him and then I met eye contact with him and I raised like both hands and I was like, Can I get a cookie? And he looked at me and and he like pointed at me and I nodded and he was like, All right. And then he threw one straight at my face. I caught it and everything was good after that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And these were all the this wasn't just the ensemble. These were all Like all the actors, like principal actors and everyone, because later we were like, "Wait, that was the that was the dude that threw you your cookies, and stuff." Once the play started, and then while this is happening, they have like a mini, like chamber group, like five people or so, just in the middle of the stage, and they were like playing music. It was basically a string quartet plus a couple other people, I think, and they're just like playing Christmas music, and all the lanterns in the audience were like lit up. And it was just such a festive environment walking into the theater as well. Do you remember, aside from
1: like the doors that were moving up and down, which remember you had this like long conversation about what kind of lever they
0: used because they looked yeah. like heavy doors? Yeah, they just had like plain doorways that would come up and down and they would like swing on an axis basically. Instead of coming straight up and straight down, they would like rotate. And they also had all these sort of like boxes in the stage. And so they looked like little... Kind of like toolboxes where there's a handle on the top and you just pull them out. But they had them like in all different shapes and sizes of rectangles, essentially. And they would put them together to basically create other props. So like they would pull three out of the stage and make a desk or they would pull some and make like a stool. And they had all these different places where they were. And from our vantage point, we couldn't really see the handles at all. Like the stage looked mostly smooth to us, I think. And so when they Mm -hmm. pulled the first one out, I was like, whoa, that's there.
1: And it was such a clever set piece because, like, Scrooge's whole thing is that he's greedy and he hoards money. And it just, like, makes sense to have just, like, a ton of treasure chesty looking boxes. Yeah. It's probably, like, more of an applaud to, like, the original script, but I really like the story and, like, I think it's so cool that, like, they're able to make you really feel sad about Tiny Tim hypothetically dying, even though you've seen him for, like, a total of 20 seconds on stage prior to that. Mm -hmm. Is this, like, ever gonna show again? Like, this exact production?
0: I think they were talking about making it, like, a yearly thing. And it's, like, a
1: lot of set pieces and, like, quite a large production for something to be showing for a
0: month and a half, so... Yeah. It would make so much sense for it to come back. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing I want to say about Tiny Tim is they had two little boys switch off for Tiny Tim and both of them had cerebral palsy. So they specifically wanted to cast like um, disabled children and give them a chance to, you know, like be on stage and be in theater. And I don't know what their casting process was like, but I thought that was also a really nice touch. The other thing just to say about this is the playwright for this specific version is Jack Thorne, who's kind of infamous for writing the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child play. And I actually don't think he's a bad playwright in general, I think, because he also wrote the book for King Kong. I just think he probably gets handed material that isn't easy to work with. But I think he's really good at crafting dramatic moments and like really getting that. Emotional, like highs and lows of a certain arc.
1: I mean, I don't think he deviated very much from anything like in this. There's like probably like a million and a half Christmas Carol mm-hmm. rewrites out there. So it probably wasn't the most difficult thing for him. I still hate Curse Child. I liked this, but like it's like a
0: rewrite of a rewrite right. of a rewrite of Which a rewrite of a rewrite. But it's and, funny like, because if you look at the actual reviews for this, it was either people were like, wow, that was magical. But some people like actually hated it. And they were like, wow, you sucked mm-hmm. all the like Christmas spirit out of this and just made it like such a bare, hand-wavy thing. And I was like, I did not get that impression at all. I mean, it was darker than I expected. I feel like it made sense for it to be dark for a lot of it because it's kind of a pretty dark story. It's like this guy is faced with his own mortality. The contrast between... That and the last scene where everything's super bright is, um like, it just makes it even better, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, and I agree that, like, it is a dark story, and, like, this take on it totally worked. Yeah. But if you are looking for, like, a complete feel-good caroling <laughs> synopsis, then this is not the show. Yeah, I mean, there, around Christmas time, there were, like, two dozen Christmas carol plays on and
0: off-Broadway, oh, yeah. so...
1: I think, you know,
0: um, lots of options. I think it was Adam Feldman of Time Out New York that like made a list of all of them. We're six
1: months from mid-November. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm going to die soon. Remember our was born. betrayal lots of Marvel stars alright if you don't know betrayal is a three and a half person play with (laughs) um, (laughs) I mean it's true one guy shows up for like exactly five minutes and no one cares about him as he is not famous poor guy there was a revival of the play betrayal that starred Charlie Cox who is also daredevil in the Marvel TV show Tom Hiddleston who's obviously Loki and Zai Ashton who is not a Marvel star, but
0: also pretty cool.
1: My favorite anecdote about her is people don't know how to pronounce her name because it's Z A W E. Every time someone asked her how to pronounce her name, she would tell her that it's like David Bowie, as in like you should pronounce the W and not just call her like Zaw. It's like Zowie, <laughs> right? But then because she said Bowie, everyone just started calling her Zoe. And she was like, well, I fucked up there. (laughs) Betrayal is a story where, so Tom Hiddleston's character, Robert, is married to Zoe's character, um, Emma. But she's also, she was cheating on him with his best friend, played by Charlie Cox, whose name is Jerry. And I think by the time that this play takes place, she's actually not sleeping with Jerry anymore. Barely a plot. It's more like a situation.
0: Yeah. And the thing is, it does go backwards. So it like the first thing you see is just Emma and Jerry, the friend talking to each other. And it's obvious that they were having an affair. And I think that's the time that she tells him like, oh, Robert knows and he's known for a while. And Jerry's like, what? You didn't tell me this? Like, so it's like the first betrayal is like Emma's betrayal of jerry by not telling him that robert knew and basically the whole story it goes backwards so you kind of see how the relationship developed how people find out about like different ways that people betray each other and it's just like look at all the different ways that like people betray each other in multiple ways for basically everyone in our group that saw this we were like i mean i get it people are people betray each other like no need to belabor the point
1: it didn't feel that realistic to me because like jerry and robert hung out as though Robert didn't know and didn't care that his wife had slept with his best friend multiple times.
0: Yeah. And also the thing is that Robert does find out without letting Emma know because he basically like accidentally, well, not even accidentally, he picks up her mail while they're on vacation. And Jerry wrote her like a love letter while she was on vacation with Robert, which first of all is a super dumb move. Like, why would you do that? Um, I mean, people in love. You
1: heard Aaron Tvedt's speech. in Long yeah. Rouge. They go to their husband's homes and profess their love. Yeah.
0: yeah. And so Emma is basically left to tell Jerry. And I think it was implied that like, oh, Robert's gonna use this against you or something. And there's a lot of just like other confusing things that happen like there's a child that comes in and out and it's a little unclear whether the child is actually robert's child or if it's supposed to be hinted that it's jerry's child or like it's supposed to be ambiguous like it wasn't even clearly ambiguous of like oh who knows which child it is but it was just like yeah there's a child here
1: all three of the characters were extremely bland to me they were all really hot but like like Emma is, like, one of those girl characters that, like, sits cross-legged on a chair barefoot in her high-waisted jeans and nice ass and drinks a (laughs) beer and then, like, sarcastically laughs a lot and scoffs a lot. And she's just one of those, like, bland, cool girl characters. And, like, both of the guys are kind of just, like, equivalents of that. They're all very quiet. None of them really show any emotion. When we finished the play, I was like, was that... Was
0: that saying something? (laughs) That was my question, too. I was like, is there a message we're supposed to take away from this? Like, what was the point? Yeah. Honestly, the MVP
1: is the waiter who serves Emma and Robert melon and prosciutto in, what is it, Italy? And then we ordered that at Bar Centrale right after we saw the show. And it was amazing. And also, when I went back, they didn't have it on the menu anymore. So sad.
0: Yeah, the waiter played by Eddie Arnold, who's actually the MVP because he understudies both Jerry and Robert. So, like, he basically knows all the male bros. Oh, damn. (laughs) That is
1: so stressful. I mean, how can you fill Tom Hiddleston's perfect body proportions?
0: And his receding receding hairline. hairline. I think that's just what Pinter does, supposedly, is he, like, doesn't really say a lot in dialogue, but it's all about... Like, what the characters don't say in Pinter Plays and, like, what they're hiding from each other and also just, like, what their internal conflicts are. And the set was, like, super bland. It was just, like, one giant box on stage and a turntable. And they would just, like, move chairs onto the middle of the stage and sit in them while, like, if it was a two-person scene, the third person would just kind of, like, lean on the wall behind them and stuff as, like, a metaphor for, like, the third person is always there, like, encroaching on this relationship or whatever. I mean, so this is why Joanne judges people. I was going to say that, Pinter. too. I was like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> Joanne is the true MVP. She's like, fuck they do the <laughs> people who go see Pinter plays. <laughs> exactly. Don't go to Pinter. Don't go to Mahler. Pour one out for Mahler. But, like, fuck him.
1: Yeah. If you're going to see them, drink through it. Yeah. That's what Ladies Who Lunch is actually about. (laughs) I'll drink through that, And one for Mahler.
0: There was never just like any shocking moment or anything that made you think like, wow, this was an incredible twist that they built up to or anything. And I remember when we came out, you were like, I thought it would be like Merrily Roll Along where the backwards telling actually makes sense and like you can see why they told it backwards and here you just couldn't really like
1: i think if a play is going to go backwards in time which this does because it starts from the moment where emma tells jerry that robert knows and then they go back in time to explore like the time of the affair and it even goes back in time to the point of before their affair when like Emma and robert first get married and jerry's the best man and they're like celebrating at the reception like it goes up until that point and like in merrily we roll along it was like This is us sad, successful people now and look how close and happy we were when we were like young and poor, which like, I mean, like it's not like a grand message or anything like it's been told before, but it was really well done because it used this cool backwards thing that worked really, really well. And this one didn't do anything. Like I was waiting for like some moment, even just like a basic moment of pure joy from like when they were first Friends and Em and Robert were first married, and there is none of this crap and cheating and betrayals going on. Just like something that was like, oh, like wouldn't it have been amazing if things stayed like this? And like, we never even really got that. Yeah.
0: If Marilyn rolled along, it's they never really made a conscious decision. They didn't never were like, oh, we want to not be friends anymore, and we want to like. You know, and it it turns into like a this is what growing up is about, and this is what happens when you like choose your priorities in a certain way and stuff and and here it was like literally at the reception for the wedding, I think when Jerry was hitting on Emma, and they already kind of had like the start of their affair, and it's like, well, you made a pretty clear choice there it's not like like it would be even more ingenuous if it was like bemoaning. How much their friendship had de- deteriorated because it's like, well, Jerry, you could have just like not.
1: That is so true. You feel no sympathy for any of the characters. And merely we roll along. It's like, you can understand that like, well, this person had this dream for this career and so they had to like, give up certain things with friends and there were like moments of betrayal in there where it was like instead of your good art I'm gonna pick this commercial art like that kind of shit but like you under like you hate them but you understand where they're going and with this one it's just like what the fuck are you doing
0: the fact that they're so unsympathetic I think is really the crux of my problem with this because you never in one moment like are like yeah I understand why you made that choice you're just like Watching this kind of train wreck of a relationship happen, and you're like, well, I mean, you deserve that? It's so hard to see Robert and Emma
1: actually being in love and a happy couple. It's so hard to see Robert and Jerry actually being best friends. Yeah. Like, they just despise each other for the entire play.
0: Yeah. I mean, all the reviews for this were like, this is the best version of this play that I've ever seen.
1: Also, it was showing at the same time as *See Wall of Life, which we reviewed in our part one. And that means that there were three Marvel men on Broadway at the same time, two of which were Taylor Swift boys. <laughs> so just take that statistic as
0: you will, but it happened. I was having tea with Casey. Where? Just around the corner. I thought he lived in Hampstead or somewhere. You're out of date. Am I? He's left Susanna.
1: He's living alone around the corner. Oh. Writing a novel about a man who leaves his wife and three children and goes to live alone on the other side of London to write a novel about a man who leaves his wife and three children.
0: I hope it's better than the last one.
1: The last one? Ah, the last one. Wasn't that the one about the man who lived in a big house in Hampstead with his wife and three children, writing a novel Why about... Why didn't you like it?
0: I've told you, actually. I think it's the best thing he's written. It may be the best thing he's written, but it's still bloody
1: dishonest. All right. The big ticket number, The Inheritance. Yes. My script has
0: still not <laughs> arrived. So this is another play that's in two
1: parts. I was like so convinced that part two is bad. Right. Um, Because of everything online. So I was like, I love part one. Let's just keep it sanctity and not fuck it up.
0: Yeah, (laughs) that's fair.
1: (laughs) But I actually ended up loving part two more, which isn't a super popular opinion. But like, I think
0: I genuinely feel like both parts are very good. Yeah. So the total show is what, like seven, almost seven hours. Mm. But yeah, since this is a new play, we will be talking through spoilers. But I, if you look in the description, I'll put timestamps for when you can start skipping if you don't want to hear spoilers, because... This will probably be done somewhere in the future. It's already announced that it's going to LA at some point. So,
1: it's incredible. It's such a shame that it closed early. I love this play. It's amazing because it's like kind of slice of lifey, but like with like incredible, like shocking moments as well. And they touch on so many socioeconomic issue type things inheritance does it like all within conversation between the actors and Mm -hmm. like it's, it so doesn't feel preachy. So natural. Pretty hard to give a summary on a seven-hour play. So many one-act plays this season, but this one covers it
0: all for yeah, you. This one makes up for all the second acts that you were missing.
1: Um, Inheritance is... Their website says three generations of gay guys.
0: Um, well, so the older generation is basically Walter Poole and his husband, Henry Wilcox. And then right. the main characters, I'd say, are... Um, Eric Glass is probably the main, main character of the, I guess, mm-hmm. middle generation. And he at the start of the play, he's living with his boyfriend, Toby Darling. And then I guess the younger generation you would say is um, uh, like the youngest yeah, is Leo and Adam, who are played by the same person, but are technically two different people.
1: Yeah. Adam is this like aspiring actor. Um, Toby Darling is like a starving script writer who lives with his boyfriend, Eric, um, who has a house that's like rent controlled or whatever. You see like the success of Toby darling as his play, like really makes it big with Adam as the leading actor and how that changes his life with Eric. And then the older generation with um, Walter and Henry is the generation that actually like saw the AIDS, epidemic that like swept through the country in the 80s and so they kind of view gay culture very very differently from like the younger members of the story um and it's really interesting to see them clash so like act one basically opens at eric glass's house um the cast is mainly beautiful young men who are all gay and um Eric's friends because he is an amazing person who has a lot of friends and is a good boyfriend. Um, so Adam shows up at his house during one of these parties that he throws for his friends because they ask me switch strand totes. And there's like a million and a half strand totes in this show. I really hope that the Strand Bookstore sponsored this. (laughs) Otherwise, it's free promotion, which they also deserve. It's fine. The Strand totes are beautiful. Um, And that's how, like, Adam meet Eric and Toby. Um, Adam is extremely hot. Everyone agrees. But then Toby's script gets, like, turned into a play. Adam is the lead actor, so they go off rehearsing, touring, doing whatever the fuck. And Eric is left at home by himself. He um, gets an eviction notice. And so like kind of all this stuff happens and basically Toby comes back from all his success and dumps Eric because he wants to go out with Adam, who is super, super hot. Um, so he dumps Eric, goes immediately to Adam's house. Adam rejects him. And he kind of like goes on a bender and then looks online for a hooker where he finds someone that looks exactly like Adam, but his name's actually Leo and he's like 17, 18,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. hires him. They kind of become friends. Crazy shit happens. And then on the other end, um, Eric is sitting at home knowing that he's going to be almost evicted. And Walter... Um is living in his building and while Henry is like off in London doing business because Henry's a super successful businessman and Walter's like essentially his house husband and so Walter and Eric form a really close bond because both of their significant others are like out of commission Walter and Eric just like talk a lot about the things that they care about. And Walter turns out is actually terminally ill. And when he knows he's about to pass away, he invites Eric to his own home, which is not the fancy Hamptons home, but this like other house that he and Henry had bought during the AIDS epidemic for them to like hide in the countryside away from everything else that was going on. We find out later that like this house was used as like a holding place place hospital like dying bed for a lot of other gay men during that time because Walter like felt that he was really privileged and wanted to give like his friends and a decent place to die mm-hmm. um, and so it was a really important space for him and he felt like Eric would preserve that but the night that he wants to show Eric this he misses a chance to do that and the next time that Eric hears about Walter he's dead um walter writes an obituary to leave the house to eric but henry and the adopt and the two adopted sons like rip that up because they're like what the fuck that house is very important to us too and then this is so long i'm sorry um but uh, there's a lot to unpack and henry goes to um eric to bring him like some fancy antique that belonged to Walter instead because he feels guilty about not giving Eric the house. He finds out that Eric's being evicted so he feels even worse and then like they start talking and then they start dating and then he basically buys Eric an apartment. That's pretty much like 75% of the way into the story for like all the timeline
0: for all the different storylines. The other thing that we should mention is the way that it's structured is um, the way that the set works is there's this kind of like raised platform in the middle of the stage and the way that it starts is it the guy who plays adam is essentially the narrator of the story and so he'll be like a narrator person and narrate stuff that's going on and he'll just like point at people who are sitting around this raised platform and be like oh toby and like point at the actor who ends up playing toby and sorry
1: the reason he's doing that is because it starts off in like a writing class
0: right and
1: The actor that ends up playing Adam in, like, the actual play is also the guy that's trying to write a story.
0: The guy playing Walter, who is Paul Hilton, he also doubles as a character named Morgan, who's a stand-in for Ian Forster, because he would go by the name Morgan. And so basically what Adam slash the narrator is doing is creating a story based on, like, modern-day gay friends and, like, millennials, essentially – based on the novel Howard's End. So he's sort of like reimagining this novel with his friends and like other gay people that presumably he knows, which is essentially what this play, especially part 1 is. Is it kind of just retells that same story. And so like in the beginning he literally says like, "Oh yeah, like stuff about Toby. Toby will be dead by the end of this." And the actor playing Toby is just like, "Wait, what?" And so it has this really kind of interesting dynamic between the story and the characters and the storyteller. And like the storyteller kind of determines what these people do. And it all sort of comes full circle at the end in a really cool way that I liked a lot. Ian e. Forster was known as pretty closeted up until he died. And his only one like um, outwardly gay novel was published after he died. When Adam is like the
1: narrator of his own book. Um he doesn't know where to start either like as a writer and so he actually starts it with the same line that E M Forster started Howard's End which is one may as well begin with Helen's letters to her sister and so he's like I don't know how to write I'm just going to copy my favorite book one may as well begin one may as well begin one may as well begin and then he's like one may as well begin with like Toby's drunk phone calls to Eric while he's in the Hamptons so Toby jumps into the elevated platform which is like where the story takes place now right and then Toby like calls Eric and he's like and then Adam is like Toby has had like two margaritas and then he's like hello eric and uh, and then he has a conversation he leaves a voicemail and then it's like now toby has had five margaritas and he's like Woo-hoo! hello eric it's really cool because like at the beginning there's a clear narrator who's like in this writing class who's telling his friends in the writing class to do this and that and then it slowly has a really smooth transition into like the actors just being actors and the full stage being like this play and not really having any space for the writing class but then like
0: later on they'll bring the writing class back a little or two seasons ago the big play was angels in america the revival of it with nathan lynn and andrew garfield and i didn't actually see it but i i know you saw it and i had like other friends that saw it and one of those friends was um i mean he's gay and he's like basically graduating college this year and he was just like I'm so tired of every gay story just being about AIDS and being about why like homosexual people suffer because they have AIDS or they also have to worry about AIDS and that's no longer the case anymore. And so he was also just like this time is so foreign to me that I just don't understand like these stories anymore. And like that was kind of the same experience that I had with, you know, all these other stories like we saw boys in the band and I was like, I can see why this would be good, but this is not a story for me because it's not something that I can personally relate to. And this play really brought in people of all different types. And it's cool because when... Walter talks to Eric. Eric is also kind of in a similar state where he like intellectually understands the AIDS crisis and knows like a like a certain percentage of people died and like all these people were affected and you know there was no cure for a long time and all that that wasn't a concern he had anymore because of like modern medicine and all that stuff and so the way that Walter had to explain the AIDS crisis to um, Eric was also a really good way of just explaining it to basically everyone that hadn't lived through it. And he was like, yeah, imagine you have like a Rolodex of all your contacts, like pick three and two of them are dead. And like the way that he explained it was so impactful that made me like really realize why you couldn't really talk about the gay experience without talking about AIDS. It sort of like brings those generations together, which is The other thing that this play is trying to do is, like, what does the past generation pass on to the next generation? And, like, what are the stories we want to tell and, like, want people to remember? And how do we get that to, like, perpetuate?
1: Yeah, and that thing that gets passed on is basically the inheritance. And the story is just about, like, what this previous generation of gay men were able to leave behind for the current generation of gay men. The debate of, like, why Henry is a Republican has to be one of my favorite scenes because it's, like... So extremely nuanced. Like I thought about it for so long after because the younger guys were like, how can you be a Republican? The Republican Party has persecuted us for so long. And he was like, yeah, you guys just keep thinking that. But really, the Democratic Party has only embraced us for like a decade or two. And we're just so desperate of acceptance that like we're willing to take that and just be like oh yeah the democratic party was always good to us and then he was like if you really want to see like who was able to like promote affordable aids medication throughout the world to like third world countries that was actually president bush your last boogeyman before trump
0: which is like not something that i knew for sure Mm -hmm. and i really appreciated how they treated henry because you know most of the people that like go to Broadway shows that work on Broadway are pretty democratic. And so it does seem like a lot of the times it's like, oh, well, like, you know, Trump is terrible, which is probably true, you know, and it but it does seem like the theater community is in a bubble. And they didn't make Henry out to be evil just because he supported Trump, even though the characters thought that like he still had really cohesive and coherent arguments for like, well, why shouldn't I support Trump? And like, I need to look out for my interests. And it's not my responsibility to be the savior of this entire population. But then at the same time, it's not like, oh, he's right. And all these other like millennials are just like, you know, young and dumb and like social justice warriors. It's you can really see both sides of the conversation. I felt like this was a lot more real portrayal of how different sides come together and like the kinds of debates that like should and could be happening if we actually want to have like a more cohesive government going forward
1: Mm -hmm. and also they give like really good explanations for like why those disagreements existed when the younger men were like do you remember gay bars like i wish we could have gay bars i love gay bars just like being around our people henry is kind of like no like i don't really care about this because there wasn't really a community. There was just persecution. If you went to a gay bar, people knew that you went to a gay bar and would beat you up for it during the AIDS epidemic. And like, he knows that he's guilty of this himself because he was so mad at Walter for being, for bringing infected guys into their home. But he was like, like we all viewed each other like, We were terrified of each other. Like if we touch the other person, they would kill us. And like, so like he doesn't really care about that community or want that community.
0: And it's like that idea of like romanticizing the past, even if the past weren't that romantic. Aside from the serious stuff, there were great references and
1: small jokes. There's that one guy that was, I don't remember his name, but he was kind of painted as the playboy of the group. And he ended up dating this like younger guy who was an artist who made faux Um, art.
0: Was that? Jasper?
1: I think that was Jasper. Yeah. But um he did these like paint these beautiful paintings of like very idealistic like situations. He painted like a beautiful photo of his mom and they're like that's beautiful and he's like yeah, I hate my mom, fuck her. <laughs> and they were like what the fuck is faux art? And he said that like really cool line that was like faux art means like that this isn't real. Like I paint what people want to see and like you want to see an awesome mother, but that's not real. I hate that bitch. It was also like just like an out of blue line said by a character that we had never seen before that really made you think
0: i mean it really was just like it was like it had a story to tell but within that story it wasn't afraid of taking detours and just showing you who these people were and what kind of people like gay men are today like even if they didn't have the actual plot i would watch seven hours of just them having conversations (laughs) I mean, like coming into this, you know, it's always hard watching a two part play and being excited about it because you're like, oh, I'm going to watch part one and it's going to be three hours and have two intermissions. And then, and then if it's good, like you almost don't want it to be good because you're like, then if it's good, then I have to go get tickets for part two. So I was definitely kind of reluctant. And we were just like, we just got to get this over with. We got to watch a show, like, because it's been getting pretty good reviews. And like immediately within the first like minute, I was like, oh, yeah. I'm into this like I'm ready for this like I'm really excited to see what happens next and just like the way that they opened and the way that they constructed this narrative was just so interesting and so engaging.
1: Yeah like I would say that Inheritance is just truly a good play like it is incredible and it pushes boundaries and like shows people what they didn't know in its own right whereas like Slave Play is kind of a good play because of how far it pushes its boundaries right. whereas like Inheritance I think is truly just like an outstanding script, outstanding play. Yeah. I recommended Amanda to see this because she watched Angels one day after I did. Um and she liked it a little more than I did, but I was like if you like that I think you would really love Inheritance. And I remember her being like being like, "Oh yeah, it's another like attractive white boy gay show and she was like what i really want is like minority gay people lesbians that was like like
0: part of the like large amount of criticism that this play got was that it did not it was very white and it's interesting because the playwright is hispanic and he has written plays for minorities before and he has like defended this play and been like well that just wasn't factored into the story that i wanted to tell like i wanted i wanted to tell a story about gay people like and he felt like he was kind of pigeonholed into being like because he was a minority he felt like people were expecting him to tell a minority story and he's like he was basically saying that responsibility shouldn't be on my shoulders i think
1: there's already so much going on with these characters so much to unpack just the way that they are written as white boys and if you factor in like a minority background it would probably end up being like a 14-hour play yeah. like a lot is said already they even make a joke in there because toby darling the play in the story writes like a what like a 300 page script or something and his agent is like nobody wants to read that no one's gonna want to sit through 300 pages worth of plays yeah. and then the entire audience
0: is like well we're the sucker i guess And they're talking about another play at BAM. And he's like, yeah, it's like four hours long. And Henry is like, four hours? And Eric is like, but there's two intermissions. And we're like, well, fuck me then. (laughs) I mean, I would say if you were to just see part one, it gives you a pretty solid ending. But after watching part two, like the ending of part two was so solid. And I was like, yeah, like you kind of have to see part two to understand the full scope of what Matthew Lopez was going for, even if part one kind of ends on a pretty decent note. Mm -hmm. I thought it just was a really nice full circle moment. It made a lot of sense, for example, like why Adam is the one telling the story and like how he fits in to the larger scope of the play and like why um, Eric is sort of the main character, even though it might seem that He's a very bland person to begin with. Like, everyone around him kind of has more personality than him, but he really emerges as the main character.
1: We don't actually call The Inheritance an adaptation of Howard's End. I've taken the basic plot of Howard's End and the characters of Howard's End, and I reframed it in the 21st century, using gay characters rather than three families from three social classes. But what I've taken is the ideas of Howard Zinn, and I've used it to ask the question what, what are the responsibilities from one generation of gay men to another? What is the continuum? What have I inherited from the generation before me? And what are my responsibilities to the generation that that has come after me? The questions that E.M. Forster was interested in asking about social classes, I've taken and, and applied to, to being a gay man in America. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, our fourth play is a play that I did not see, but Christine did. And yes. I didn't because it sounded scary and it's called The Sound Inside. Yeah. And so
0: this also is a new play and it got really good reviews and I thought it could be a contender for a best play also. And just to huh. bury the lead a little, I did not love this play. There's a literature teacher played by um, Mary Louise Parker and she teaches at a college where this other student is going um, and he's played by Will Hochman. And so she's sort of a little bit of a washed up author like she wrote a book that wasn't super celebrated and she's a little bit sort of cranky teacher who just life hasn't gone her way and, and will hulkman plays the student christopher who's like a very eccentric sort of student and sees the world through like different ways and he also really liked her book and so and at first he goes to like her office hours just to talk to her and, like, ask her for her opinion because he really liked her book and, like, really respects her. And she's just like, no, like, go away, whatever. You're just not doing work and stuff. And But then they just sort of develop this relationship where she starts to sort of care about him and he thinks about the world and, like, writes in such a different way than anyone else. And so they kind of develop this sort of, like, almost mentorship but, like, weirdly close friendship where they're kind of the only people that can understand each other. Almost the entire theater is like blacked out. Like there's very few stage lights. And so whenever a set piece comes on, it's like that's the only thing you can see is like just this one square of the stage where the action is happening and the rest of the stage is all dark and the rest of the theater is all dark. And so it sort of gives you this very ominous mood. Not too much happens it is kind of just like a these two people talk to each other and sort of discover more about themselves and about each other as they get to understand each other. I did see this with um, our friend Alice. And afterwards, Alice was just like, I feel like I would appreciate this play a lot more if I actually knew literature, like if I actually read a lot of books, because I do reference a lot of classic oh. books got good reviews and a lot of people really seemed to like it for the atmosphere it generated and like how much it could really just have you hanging on to like oh what's gonna happen next which I did feel a lot I felt like it was really suspenseful because you just never knew with these characters what was gonna happen but I again it was like I don't feel like there was a lot of payoff to all that waiting and to all that suspense that it built up Bella played by Mary Louise Parker is sort of like writing out a story as she gathers her thoughts about this relationship with um, this student that she had. So she'll like write a word and cross it out and be like, no, it didn't happen like that. But she's instead of crafting a story like Adam in Inheritance, like just about the people around him, she's using it kind of as a means to understand what happened because the ending is very open-ended and um, like Christopher... Does do, like, does make some personal choices that I think shocks the character as well. And so you can kind of see her after the fact trying to come to terms with what's happening and like how her relationship is developing with this student. And she's trying to like write and be a novelist and like be the person that she's always wanted to be.
1: So, why is the show called The Sound Inside?
0: That I was also not sure about. They definitely reference it because she talks about like waking up from a dream. I think where, um, she like couldn't stop writing, but the only thing she was writing after she like looked at what she was writing was just, um, I think it was beware the sound inside, something about the sound inside. She just wrote like over and over and over again. And like my best guess is that it's, you know, like some repressed memory or repressed like thing is coming. Out as she like remembers this, and so that's kind of the sound inside. But it wasn't really touched upon past that. But again, it got really good reviews. I might be missing something. So
1: well, that about wraps up
0: part two of our play reviews, aka the last part. So we will definitely be coming back with another episode in two weeks, and we'll probably just talk about the season. Overall, and give our picks for if we were allowed to control the Tonys, which we obviously aren't. We should. Yeah, but we should be. And so, yeah, you can, if you want to listen to that or any of our other episodes, you can find us on whatever podcast platform you're using. You can subscribe to us, leave us a review, all of that. If you want to get in touch with us and tell us that we're wrong about any of these plays, then you can also find us on Twitter or Instagram at bottomless b or you can email us at bottomlessbway at gmail.com. Also, if my script
1: ever fucking comes, I will definitely write a blog about the inheritance.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you can also find our blog at bottomlessbway. We'll see you guys in two weeks. Yep. Peace you out. You
1: we